if you haven't actually made those nominations and memorialized, written those things down, it's very difficult for a court to know, just taking a look at the file, who is the person you would have liked to be that guardian for your kids when you can't be there. Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan. And mamas, today on the show, we're talking to Heather Satin of Satin Legal. Now, I know none of us ever really want to think about death and estate planning. It's kind of horrible. But here's the thing. We need to make a plan. And Heather is one of my favorite people when it comes to making this topic real and approachable. Heather is a business and estate planning attorney committed to helping protect families and the businesses they run. She also regularly teaches on estate planning topics, holding numerous positions in advanced legal education, including editor-in-chief and vice president of Wealth Council, a national estate planning organization dedicated to teaching and supporting estate planners. So really, who better to teach us? As always, stick around until the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from this episode, or you can head over to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Heather to download your free copy of our financial emergency preparedness checklist and to view the complete show notes from my chat with Heather. Are you ready, mamas? Let's get started. Hey, Heather, how are you? Good morning, Chelsea. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to have you here. And we were just talking about before we hit record that we're going to talk about a topic today that most people don't think is fun, but you think is actually really fun to talk about. So tell me what that is and why you think it's important we talk about it. I do. I love it. So we're going to talk about estate planning this morning. And it's it's always a good time to talk about it. I mean, it's a serious topic, but it doesn't have to be one that is anxiety producing. It can be one that we have some fun around talking about it. We can use it as a platform for talking to our loved ones about the things that are important to us. And so it really presents an opportunity for families, not just to, you know, fill out all the forms, but really put your mind to what it is that we think is important in our lives, important to share with our families and important to share with our friends and the people around us who love us. So yeah. I love it. Well, I think estate planning often falls into that like important but not urgent bucket for a lot of us of we know we should do it, but we'll just do it later. So what happens if something happens and you don't have your estate plan set up? Yeah, so that's exactly right, right? So I get tons of people coming into my office saying, oh, well, you know, we haven't really thought about this in the past because we don't have an estate to plan for. And so it's very surprising and eye-opening for many people that whether you have planned for your estate doesn't mean that there is no plan. There is always a plan. And so if you haven't decided on what you would like to see happen with your estate, then the state has a plan for you. (laughs) And so it's really important to know that. And sometimes that plan works perfectly well. But more often than not, the plan that the state has for you, which is called intestacy, that plan is not something that you would opt for yourself if you had the choice. And so choosing not to plan and just leaving it kind of closes some doors that maybe you would prefer to have open in terms of how you would like to organize your estate and who you would like to look after, not just your stuff to the extent that you've got it, but your loved ones if something were to happen to you. Okay. So intestacy, which is a horrible word. Isn't it terrible? (laughs) I imagine it differs by state. But let's take a broad brush and say, like, what happens to your assets in that process? So for many states, they have, even though there are differences from state to state, very often, or I would say in likely in almost all states, the intestacy plan that is set up will take your assets and divide it among family members. And the way that that typically happens is that if there is a spouse, a spouse will get a certain portion of the estate. If there are children, children will get a certain portion of the estate. If there are no no spouses and no children, then potentially parents will get a portion of the estate and then down through the line. And so each state has its own way of allocating those assets among heirs at law, and typically that's family. So that's what you need to be aware of when you're thinking about whether or not you're going to have some type of estate plan. It could very well be that the state's plan is something that works for you. And so it's not always that you need to have some complicated plan or a complicated trust plan, although typically 
that helps make sure that your assets in your estate is going to be divided in the way that you want. But it may very well be that the state's plan would affect the same division in any event. So it's really important to know what that plan is. And a lot of states, in fact, almost all states now have websites. They're, your state court will typically have under the probate section, they'll have self-help resources that will tell you right what those intestacy laws are so that you've got some idea of what would happen if you were to pass away without a plan. So this process of dividing assets between family members, this is probate. Correct. What's the cost of this process? Ah, that also varies from state to state. And it's not just cost in money, but it's also cost in time. And so those are kind of the two big things to know. So there are states, so for instance, New Jersey, I'm not from New Jersey or practice there, but I have heard that in New Jersey to go through probate is a fast and relatively simple process. In which case, using a will is something that works properly and is fast and expedient and not as expensive. Here in California, where I practice, probate is not fast, it's not easy, and it's not cheap either because it just takes a long time to get through the court. And so it is not unusual for a probate in California to last anywhere from 12 months to 18 months. Wow. Right? And so, yeah. Having lived in New Jersey and having family in New Jersey, I'm shocked to hear they have something that runs so smoothly. (laughs) Very surprising to me. But your point, like 12 to 18 months is a really long time. In general, you could be six months, whatever, a shorter time period is still not instantaneous. So what is happening with your assets in the meantime, right? So if you leave a spouse behind, if you leave kids behind, where is your cash? Where are your assets in that period? So typically those get frozen, right? Until the court is able to appoint someone to be able to deal with your assets through that probate process. And so that would be, you know, your estate administrator, your personal representative, if you've got a will. And that just takes time. So nothing moves until that happens, right? Which can be really problematic for family members if they're relying. I mean, if you think that you've got, you know, if the breadwinner of the family God forbid, were to pass away and there's no insurance, right? What happens in the interim? That's a real problem. And there are ways to avoid that. So let me say this. There are a lot of questions typically that I get about, you know, what is the purpose of a trust plan? You know, we hear about trusts. The way that a trust plan differs from a will plan is that, and we're talking about a revocable trust, or I'm talking about a revocable trust now. So a will, even though you have the opportunity to say exactly how you want your estate allocated, you still have to go through probate. With a trust, a trust is a probate avoidance technique. And so the mechanics of the way a trust works allows you to circumvent probate by having someone automatically appointed by virtue of the trust to be that person who deals with the estate. That's called the successor trustee. And so in that way, you can avoid probate and speed up the process, it's still not instantaneous. There's still a period of time where notices need to be sent out. And so it's still not automatic, but it's certainly much faster, typically, than what you would see with a probate. Okay. We have a bunch of questions here. You keep referring to probate as the will process, right? And if you have a will, even if you've written a will, you have to go through probate. Correct. Is it faster if you have written your own will versus using the state process? Or is it going to be just as complicated? So probate takes into account both when you've got a will and when you don't have a will. It's still both probate. And so the state process, the intestacy process, if there is no will, you still have to go through. It's typically a little longer because you don't, you haven't said how you want things to be allocated. You haven't nominated somebody who you want to be your personal representative. So typically that's going to be a more complicated process than if you have a will. Okay. That makes sense. You mentioned that for a lot of people, the state process might work just fine, right? You might decide that that's the right split. But is that the case with parents of minor children? That is not the case (laughs) for parents of minor children. Being that our audience is entirely moms. (laughs) Right. So, so, well, let me say this. I think that's that's a yes and a no. Okay. It can be the way that guardians get appointed. And so just to dispel some confusion around this, even if you have a guardian appointed in your will, and that's typically the instrument where a guardian is appointed, the courts still need 
to make the final appointment. So we typically get a lot of questions of like, well, you know, I'm divorced and I have a guardianship nomination in my estate planning documents where I have nominated my new husband or I have nominated my parents or I have nominated someone else to be my kid's guardian if I were to pass away. And so where does that leave me in terms of my ex-spouse who may have custody of some elk? And how do those two things play together? So ultimately, it's important for parents to understand that the court has the final say in terms. So even though you may have executed a nomination for a guardian as part of your estate planning documents, the court still takes a look at whether or not that's in the best interest of the children. Okay. That said, it's really important, not just because of the time factor. But because of appearances, let's say, that you nominate the people that you want. So I always use this example. We'll just say, I have a friend who has two sisters. (laughs) (laughs) She has these two sisters. One sister um, with whom she's very close is a single parent, never been married, is the parent to a child with autism and uh, has never been really financially sound right? So that's one sister. She has another sister who on paper looks like she would be fantastic. No kids, very stable job, very healthy bank accounts. But that younger sister who looks great on paper would not be the parent's first choice. Okay. Without that nomination, a court might take a look and say, okay, we're taking a look. Let's say both of the sisters are now vying for guardianship of the children, right? Nieces or nephews. Mm -hmm. And what does the court take a look at? Well, from a paper standpoint, it may very well be that the sister who looks great on paper, it looks to the court to be the most appropriate parent for that child. And if you haven't made a nomination to say, I'd really prefer my other sister who does not necessarily look as good on paper, but has much more similar values to me, educational aspirations for the kids as I do, parenting styles as I do, things like, you know, views on travel and views on long-term happiness as I do. You can't see that or the court can't see that. And so if you haven't actually made those nominations and memorialized, written those things down, it's very difficult for a court to know, just taking a look at the file, who is the person you would have liked to be that guardian for your kids when you can't be there. And let's take this to a little bit more of an extreme example, because this has come up in our audience before of, let's say that second sister who looks great on paper, it's a more severe break in the relationship, right? You really don't want them to end up with the kids. What can you do to both name the first sister, right? And make the courts more likely to give guardianship. Yeah. So what we tend to do in those situations, and so... Let me, if I can, encourage listeners to do this. This is a really difficult thing, right? Because nobody wants to face the prospect of having to write down the fact that you have had a family issue with a sibling. And so, you know, a lot of times what we'll do is we will do like a confidential affidavit that stays completely confidential unless the sister with whom you've had the break or with whom that parent who has passed away has had an issue tries to apply for guardianship, at which point we've got this confidential memo, basically, or affidavit saying, I don't want this person to ever have guardianship of my child. It's really important. We don't like doing it. As parents, we don't like doing it because we don't like facing that prospect of having to say, okay, well, you know, I never want this sister to have guardianship of my kids. But it's important to do it knowing that that information will forever stay confidential. If your kids come of age and nothing ever happens to you, then that never becomes an issue. And that sister with whom you don't have a good relationship will never, ever know that you've made that confidential memo, but it's still important to have it just in case, because the alternative is not something you want to face either. Absolutely. Okay. And so a less fraught issue, but when we're choosing guardians, what do we have to consider, right? Especially because all the time we hear from people of, I want this person, my husband wants that person, or... I've named somebody, but I haven't told them, (laughs) right? Right? So like, how do we make these decisions in a way that 
provides as much stability for our kids as possible if something happened. Yeah, absolutely. And that happens That happens just so often, all the time. Or we haven't discussed, not just we've done it, we haven't told the person who is nominated, <laughs> which happens all the time, but we haven't discussed with this person before we nominate them. I, mean, I get people into my office all the time. They're like, oh, you know, I think I'm going to nominate my friend Stacy. Have you spoken to Stacy about it? Well, I'm planning on talking to Stacy. you know, once all the documents are together, can you just send it? No, uh, no, it's not a good idea. But that happens. It happens really frequently. But some of the things that we want to think about specifically, you can nominate actually two different guardians for your kids because we all know that we've got friends and family who have very different skill sets. So you can nominate guardians that will look after the money and guardians that will look after the lifestyle. Okay, so some of the things on both of those sides that we want to think about, what are our values in terms of what are my beliefs and principles? How do I want to see my child raised? What are my views on money? So when we're thinking about these various things and who we want to nominate, we have to take a look at what it is that we want for our kids and be as clear as we can about it, which is difficult in terms of choosing someone who is in alignment with those values. Then personality and lifestyle are things. Religion, that's a huge issue. Even among parents who have different religions who are raising their kids together, a lot of times we'll find one parent will be like, well, if I were to pass away, I would absolutely want the kids to be with, you know, my parents who share my religious beliefs, which may be at odds with your spouse's religious beliefs, right? So there's got to be some discussion about how that's going to happen. Parenting style. Parenting style is huge, right? Are we, are we strict parents? Let's say fair parents somewhere in the middle. Most of us are somewhere in the middle. And do we have, you know, friends and family who we think will be able to have a similar parenting style? Now, a lot of times what we see is that young parents in particular will nominate their parents. And so one of the things that, that you need to think about as well with nominating your own parents is, you know, I would love for my dad to be the guardianship of my kids and my mom together. But if something were to happen to my dad, do I want my mom to be the sole guardian? So it's important for parents to know that if you are nominating your own parents as guardians, you're not obligated to nominate both of them jointly. You can nominate just one, right? And you can nominate successor guardians, and you ought to, because you just never know when catastrophe will strike and you don't know, you know, what the situation might be around that. And so you do want to think a couple of levels down and know that you're not obligated to nominate anyone jointly. And this goes for friends too, right? If we've got good friends, so good close friends of the family, husband and wife, and you're going to nominate them jointly. Well, if something were to happen to wife, would you want husband to be the sole guardian of your children? And you may not. And so those are the kinds of things that we need to think about. Or if they got divorced. Or if they got divorced. That's exactly right. So one thing we've heard as a recommendation before that always strikes me as a little strange is if you have you and your husband or you and your partner have different choices for guardians, mm -hmm. you're each drawing up your own will. So just name your own people. <laughs> is this a valid method? What happens if you both die at the same time? It's a totally valid method. But let me say this. So we were just talking a moment ago about the fact that the document that you're executing doesn't control by necessity who is going to become the guardian. You ultimately have to have a court make a pronouncement of who that is going to be. So when you do have different guardians nominated in your plans, if you've got individual plans, unless one of those guardians relinquishes the right to be or relinquishes, you know, says they don't want to be a guardian of your children, then what's going to happen is those two individuals are going to end up in court fighting over your kids. And so that's something to think about. So it's still valid. You could do it. But to the extent that you are putting together a plan so that you keep your family and your kids, as we say, out of court and out of conflict, mm -hmm. then setting up a situation where the likelihood of these potential guardians going into court is very, very high because we've got two separate individuals, then that's something that you need to think about carefully. And it may be valid. It may be that that is the best thing. And it may be that parents, that's what they're really adamant about it. You have to go in knowing that that is very likely to happen. 
Absolutely. Okay. So what do you think about if you can't come to the terms with your partner, right? Is it better to just do it separately instead of waiting? Because this is something that we get people all the time that are like, I'll do my will later because we just can't decide right now. Yeah, it is always better to do it now than later. So this is what I tell my clients who come in who say that they can't because I have this all over and many, many estate planners do, right? So typically if you're working with a lawyer and you, you want to do your estate plan, you get these huge worksheets and you get them too. If you're doing your own documents, you'll see them as well, right? I'm going to write down all of these people and here are all the things that I'm going to think about, etc. So I have a lot of people who come in and they're like, well, we just haven't decided. And the answer always is, that's too bad. I'm going to make you put someone down anyway, which sounds horrible. What do you mean? What if it's not the right person? Okay. Well, I want you to write it down. So write down who you think you would want and then sit with it. Mm -hmm. If you're still thinking about whether or not that was the right decision a couple of days later, then maybe that's not the right decision. For me, when I have my clients do that, if the time passes between when they've written down who they want to be that guardian and the time that I've compiled all the documents and they haven't thought about it again, that likely that's a good choice. That's a choice that they're comfortable with. But you've got to get that written down. It's very important not to wait because you can always, and this is absolutely true. And for all of your listeners, just because you've made a plan doesn't mean you can't change it. You can always change it. So it's really important to have something in place so that at the very least, your wishes are going to be honored more so than if you had no plan. But if you decide a week later or something happens and you're like, that's not the right person, then you change that. It used to be that everything was all typed out and it took a very long time. That's not true any longer. It's very easy to make changes to your estate planning documents. And so it's the most important thing is to get a plan in place and one that will protect you and make sure that your wishes are being honored when something happens to you. And there's something to be said for guardians, right, where we're never going to feel 100% comfortable because they're not us, right? There's like, first of all, we don't even want to contemplate this issue. Absolutely. <laughs> second of all, they're just not going to be us. We just want the second best people. <laughs> Chelsea, that's exactly right because it it's horrible. There's no question. Choosing a guardian or the idea of having a guardian or what that guardian, how they're going to be raising your kids is the worst thing ever. It's the worst thing ever. It really is. And it's the worst thing for those guardians. And it's the worst thing for your kids. And it's always going to be horrible. There's nothing redeeming about it in any way. It always represents really, really terrible circumstances. And let me also say this, because I think that people very often think, okay, well, these are going to be guardians for when I pass away. And this is very long term. I would encourage everyone to think about what if you become incapacitated, even temporarily, right? Mm -hmm. These are things that we need to, that we need to know. So let me also say this because this might be a good time to talk about it. We're talking now about nominating long-term guardians, right? When you nominate long-term guardians in your will, but I would like parents to think about also making sure that you've got temporary guardians nominated in place. If something were to happen to you with everything that's going on now, with COVID-19, mm -hmm. let's say, what if you were in Europe and you couldn't come back? What if something happened and you need somebody right away because you were just not able to be able to get to your kids as quickly as you ordinarily would? Really important to have these temporary nominations in place. And that may very well be a completely different person and ought to be, right? It should be someone who is proximate like close geographically <laughs> with your kids, right? Because it may be, so for instance, a lot of people nominate their parents. Their parents live on the East Coast. We were just talking, you're in Connecticut. I'm in California. You know, if my parents were on the East Coast, do I want to nominate them as temporary guardians? I do not. I want to have my neighbor or somebody that I love that I know who can go pick up my kids in a time of emergency. What does that paperwork look like? So very often it looks just the same as your long-term guardian nominations. They're typically one sheet. A lot of states allow you to have the separate, what we call a standalone guardianship nomination. Mm -hmm. And again, if that were ever brought to a court, court just takes a look at that information as these are the wishes of the parent. This is parents are almost by necessity, right? We would like to think that we are always going to choose those individuals who are best for our children because nobody knows our kids like we do. 
And so it's very important to have those in place as well. And again, those are usually one page documents that are relatively easy to execute. They need to be witnessed very oftentimes if each state has its own witnessing requirement or execution requirement. But because typically nominations are made in a will and typically wills are witnessed by two independent witnesses, then that's usually what these nominations require. You just have to check with your state. Okay. That makes sense. So I want to go back for a second to these conversations, to telling our guardians or telling our trustees, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit. But how do we approach it in a way... And let me frame this actually. So our primary is my mom. My mom is 56. She's young. She lives a mile down the road. She's the natural choice. But our second is my sister-in-law who does not have kids and isn't sure she wants kids. And so approaching that conversation, and of course, when we asked her, her immediate reaction was yes, but I was concerned of was she really thinking about this, right? Like, is this going to be too much of a lifestyle change for her? They want to care for us, right? These are people that love us. How do we get them to actually consider it and make sure they want to be that person? So let's dispel the first myth. And this is true of guardians in the very same way that it's true of trustees, in the very same way that it's true of executors. It may seem like an honor, but we never (laughs) want anyone to think that this is an honor. This is not an honor. This is a burden. We don't want to think about our children as a burden, but you know, ultimately that's what it is. And that's not to say that these guardians would not love our kids the way that we love them, but it's a burden. There's a huge, and especially you know, to become instant parents is something that's a, that's a huge, huge change. So how do we talk to them about it? I think we need to let them know, right? This is not an honor, right? This is something really serious. And you have to be in a, I think we have to counsel ourselves not to be offended if we have loved ones who don't want to take on the burden of our kids. I think that's difficult for us. Our friends and especially our family, they want us to be happy and to please us and to look after our kids if we need them because they are executing the duties of their familial relationship, right? Like your sister-in-law is like, I would do anything for you. But is that the right thing? And so, and as parents, we need to think, if we have someone who may not want kids, even if they've said that they would be happy to take on our kids if something were to happen to us, ultimately down the road, is that going to be the right parent? If we've got a, I know I used to joke when my kids were little, I was not that parent who loved going to sports games. I mean, I, it was like, oh, what is going on here? Right? How long is this t-ball game going to take? Right? <laughs> <laughs> But if I needed to have a guardian for my kids, I would want someone who was a little bit different from me in that way because I would want them to be super engaged. If we have concerns that the people who are nominating are not going to be super engaged with our kids because maybe this is not the lifestyle they would have chosen for themselves, that's something that we need to think about. But in terms of of having the discussion with them, you know, encourage them to be honest and candid. Mm -hmm. You know that you're, so I'm using your sister-in-law. That's <laughs> fine. You know that your sister-in-law loves you and would do anything for you. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, is this something that she would want to do? And if it's not something that she would want to do or if she's got reservations, and it may very well be that in having the discussion, it's not always that it's going to be like, okay, this person is not going to be the right person. But through having that discussion, you may touch on a lot of things, right? That you just don't, know about smaller things, things that seem innocuous or mundane, right, in terms of raising kids, that if you're not raising children already, you may not know about. And there may be something in those that in those circumstances, reinforce to your potential guardians that they either do not want to be guardians, or that they really would like to take that on. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. And I I like that the encouragement we have to have these conversations, right? We can't just like ignore it and hope that they are excited when they find out through the will reading that they're named as guardian. Not ideal situation. But to move to the money for a second and trustees. So we tell moms in our audience all the time that if they have minor children, they need life insurance, right? And so there's going to be some financial asset passed on. Who manages that money? And what does that look like? Yeah. So again, that really depends on how you've set up your estate planning documents. So insurance, it works a little bit differently than the assets that would typically pass through probate because insurance is beneficiary designated. And so it's a question of how you designate. We're 
those assets go or where the money from a life insurance policy goes. Many, many, of course, parents will nominate, will have trustees who will have trusts set up and those trusts will be funded or will have that life insurance money put into those trusts. And then you'll nominate a trustee who will administer the trust on behalf of the children according to all of the instructions that are in that trust. So it's the same kind of thinking we need to go through when we're looking to nominate trustees who are going to manage the money for our kids. And so some things to think about. So there's two things. You have to think about the trustee and you've got to, in some way, look into as much as you can your crystal ball and try to figure out how do I want this money allocated? When do I want this to be paid out? So one of the things that we talk to our clients about is one, if you've got young kids now, it's, and it's very difficult for parents to think, oh, well, I don't know if my child is going to go to university. I don't know what's going to happen afterwards. We're just going to pay it all out at 18. They come the age of majority and everything that was in that, that trust, any life insurance or any other financial assets, right? Just go to the, go to the kids when they turn 18. A bold strategy. Right? <laughs> but as a parent of college age kids, let me tell you, I mean, I would be horrified to know that my, <laughs> that my life insurance policy would be paid out in its entirety to my kids who are 20 and 18 because they still, they're in this transition period where they are learning how to manage money on their own, but to come into that much money early on is difficult. And so you can actually manage that through having a trust that designates A, how they get the money, B, what they can spend it on, when it gets paid out. And you can provide that, you know, they become a co-trustee of their own assets at a certain point so that they're working with the trustee that you nominated while they were younger to learn, you know, those same values that you would have liked to have instilled in them if you were still able to. This actually brought up an interesting question for me. So if you have kids that are naturally different ages, uh, you only have one set of identical twins, and you do set the age of 18, does the oldest child just get half of whatever's there at that point? Like, how do they deal with that? Not necessarily. So you can do it both ways, right? You can either have what's called a pot trust, <laughs> where you've got all of the all of your assets and anything that was paid out through life insurance and anything else is in one, it's kind of like in one pot, and then your trustee typically will have discretion to how much you want to pay out. So where this becomes important is if you've got, let's say both of your kids are going to university mm -hmm. and you during lifetime while you're still alive have already paid for one of your kids to go through university and that's already paid. If something were to happen to you and you were to just split all your assets in half, then you've got a younger child who's potentially now also going to go to university and spend a hundred and more thousand dollars. What is it now? $200,000? <laughs> a ridiculous right? amount. A ridiculous <laughs> amount on university, whereas that was already taken care of by parents during lifetime for the older child. And so very often we'll use a pot trust to take that into account so that the trustee and give the trustee discretion to be able to pay out the younger child's education expenses and not have that come out of that split. But you don't have to. So you can either do it in that way and group all of those assets together and provide instructions for the trustee as to how you want those assets paid out to the kids. Or you can have individual trusts where you just take a certain portion, whether that's 50% or some other non-equal distribution, and you can have two separate trusts for the kids. So two different accounts and potentially two different trustees. Today's podcast is brought to you by Debt.com. One of my favorite things about Debt.com is that they remove the embarrassment around getting out of debt. If you're feeling overwhelmed by monthly payments or balances, but don't know who to turn to, Debt.com can match you with the perfect, trustworthy debt solution provider to help you create a debt freedom plan and build a strong financial foundation. You can learn more by visiting smartmoneymamas.com backslash debt or by calling their free support line at 844-462-8280 to discuss solutions for your unique situation. That number again is 844-462-8280. Debt.com for when life happens. And so one of the big mental blocks, at least we see in our audience with setting up estate planning is the expense, right? And trusts are naturally 
much more expensive, whether you're working with an attorney or even doing it online. So one question I have for you is, when is it worth it? When do we need a trust? Or when is it worth considering? And then the second part is, something we hear is that people name their spouse as the first beneficiary on their life insurance policy. And then they name the second as either their minor children or whoever they named as a guardian in their will. So when do we consider a trust? And if we don't, and we do this thing with the beneficiaries, what could go wrong? (laughs) Sorry for the two powder. (laughs) So many things. Um, (laughs) So let me talk about the beneficiary designations and the life insurance first, because this is really important to know. So a spouse, that's very, very typical. But if you designate someone who you have nominated to be the guardian, right, whether or not they actually become the guardian of your children won't matter typically, right? Because the money is not designated for that particular purpose. It's not going into a trust where the trust has the rules around how that money is going to be spent. So what happens is, is it just turns into a gift to whomever it is. And if that person decides not to take on the responsibility or the burden of becoming the guardian to your kids, then you've given them an awful nice gift in the interim. And that happens. And so that's something to be really careful with. And it's important to talk to, I would like to say it's important to talk to a lawyer about how that, if you've got concerns about how that's going to happen, right? Or how you want those proceeds allocated, because there are tax implications. There are a number when we're talking about taking life insurance proceeds and putting them into a trust. And there's, in fact, there's a whole bunch of new legislation in terms of not just life insurance, but retirement assets, right? That roll over into trusts or that get funded into trusts. It's important to talk to a lawyer about how that will work so that it works in the way that you want to, and you're not creating unnecessary, unintended consequences by trying to circumvent, by designating a particular individual that you also have as your guardian as a beneficiary under your life insurance policy, we're circumventing, you know, a trust potentially or the probate process potentially. And that may not be advisable, you know, depending on the circumstances. And what about naming minor children? So naming minor children, there is going to be a trust set up anyway, right? (laughs) So what will happen is if you nominate a minor as a beneficiary under your life insurance policy, there's going to, by necessity, have to be a trust set up anyway, because they are not of the age of majority. And who would the trustee be in that case? So that depends, right? It's going to depend on a variety of factors, depends on who the court appoints, but it's by necessity going to be a court process. Okay. And then when do we need a trust? When should we just suck it up (laughs) and set up a trust? So back to part of what we were talking about right at the beginning of the conversation, the trust that most people are familiar with now are revocable trusts, meaning you set up this trust but you can revoke it at any time during your lifetime. There's also a revocable trust, but that's not what we're talking about here. So we're talking about revocable trusts. And are revocable trusts living trusts? They are. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Just in case people have heard that term. (laughs) Yes, because they are revocable during lifetime. Okay. So that's how they get those two names, right? A living trust. You can revoke it at any time during lifetime. And very typically... When you have a revocable trust, there's three different roles that need to be filled when you have a trust. You have the grantor or the trust maker. This is the individual who is giving the property into the trust. You have the trustee who is responsible for administering what was put into the trust by the grantor or the trust maker. And you have the beneficiary. Generally, during lifetime with a revocable trust, the individual, so spouses typically, right? will be, or any individual, all three of those roles. They will be the trust maker, they will be the trustee, and they will also be the beneficiary. So trusts are used mainly, there's two main benefits. One is the avoidance of probate. So if you have costly or time-consuming probate in your state, having a trust is a way to shorten up that time period. And a lot of the expense, not all of the expense, and not all of the time. (laughs) right? It's not a magical device that makes it free. Uh, And I think that it's important for people to realize this. There are still trust administration costs and there's time that's involved in usually hiring of lawyers, even if you have a trust. So it's not that probate is very, very expensive and having a trust is free. That's not at all how it works. And so it's important for people to know. The second benefit of having a trust is that you can provide for your incapacity. 
So if you have a trust where your bank accounts are funded into the trust or you've got bank accounts that are titled in the name of the trust, your trustee during your lifetime as a parent can deal with those assets for your benefit during lifetime. So those are the two kind of big benefits of having a trust. Now, for those states, again, where probate is not expensive or super time consuming, trusts are not as important to have because they're not circumventing the negative effects the way that they would in a state where probate is long and costly. Do trusts at all help avoid estate taxes? For a revocable trust, the answer to that is no. Okay. Although luckily, you know, a couple of years ago with all of the new tax legislation that came in, we had we saw a doubling of the federal estate tax exemption. So their states have their own estate tax. Some of them, California does not, but there are states that do. And so you just need to be aware of that. Okay. So when we talked about trust, we brought up incapacity. And I think that's something we really want to touch on of how do we make sure our estate plan doesn't just plan for our death, but also plans for end of life care and medical issues. Yeah, this is something that's really important, especially for young parents, because I think that for many, many of us, death is so far off that it's really difficult for us to think about and to internalize, right? Like ultimately, this is something that happens when I'm much older. Incapacity can strike at any time. And it's something that very often we don't put our minds to. And so when we're talking about incapacity, typically there's two, right? There's a temporary incapacity and then there's long-term incapacity. So trusts that we just spoke about are one of the ways that we can designate instructions for a trustee about how we want to be cared for during our incapacity. And also, let me say, we can designate how or what are the circumstances around being a determination that we are incapacitated which is also important to think about. Do we want to have two doctors decide that we are incapacitated? Do we need to nominate a panel of people that we know to make that nomination? All of those things are really important. So there are different aspects. So there's, we talked about a trust. There are also, you can do a nomination of conservator. So let's talk for a second about what a conservatorship is. And a conservatorship may have different names in your state. It might be an adult guardianship in the state that you're in. And so that is a process. We call it a living probate, right? And it still goes through the probate courts, whereby the court appoints someone to make healthcare decisions for you and also to make financial decisions for you. In the very same way that we want to have nominations in our will or in our trust documents for what happens to us on death, we want to be sure that we are nominating people who we want to care for us during our incapacity. And so it's the same thought process that we need to go through very often as when we're thinking about nominating guardians for our kids. So we need to think about who are people that we really trust. And I get a lot of people coming into my office saying, I want to be sure when I put my estate plan together and I nominate someone who's going to look after me during my incapacity, that that only becomes effective Mm -hmm. once I am incapacitated. If you have a concern like that, so for anyone who's listening, if you're thinking about nominating someone who's going to be your medical power of attorney, your agent for healthcare decisions, or financial power of attorney, right, who can deal with your finances and be paying of your bills during your incapacity, and you're concerned that you don't want that agency to become effective until you're incapacitated, think about how you would feel if you're actually incapacitated and someone for whom you don't have full and complete trust while you are not incapacitated is now going to be in charge of your healthcare and your financial decisions. So a lot of times we'll you know, we'll see that between spouses. I don't want my husband to be able to deal with my financial assets until I'm actually deemed incapacitated. For those people who are having those internal discussions with themselves, think a lot about whether or not you want a spouse to be your power of attorney. And let me tell you, you do not need to nominate a spouse for either of those roles. So we can do it through a trust. We can do it through nominations of conservators. We've got healthcare powers of attorney, which will nominate someone to be your healthcare power of attorney. And we've got financial powers of attorney. And for very many states, those documents 
are forms that the states have put out. So for instance, in California, we have what's called a statutory form power of attorney, both for healthcare directives or healthcare powers of attorney and for financial. Okay. So for powers of attorney, when we talk about specific powers of attorney or and tell me if I'm getting these phrases wrong, or durable powers of attorney. Are there reasons why durable powers of attorney are better anyway? Or do we have to be more specific about what incapacitation means in a specific one? Break that down for me a little bit. So durable actually means that it will survive an incapacity. Okay. Right? So in order for something to be durable, it's going because it can be, you can have a financial power of attorney that is operative while you have a person who has full capacity. So that's possible, right? You can always nominate a power of attorney. It's durable once the maker, once the individual has become incapacitated. So that's the reason for the word. But very often we think about durable powers of attorney as these much longer attorney drafted forms as opposed to the statutory form that I was just talking about that many, many of the states have. And there are definite pros and cons to both. Some pros to making sure that you've got a short form statutory power of attorney from your state is that banks and hospitals are very familiar with those statutory short form power of attorneys. And as a result, they are likely to be honored immediately because it's something that they recognize. Okay. When we talk about durable powers of attorney that are much longer, typically they're like, they can be anywhere from like 10 pages to 25 pages or longer. They'll spell out in great detail all of the powers that are being granted to the agent. Now, there are definite pros to that. The reason is the statutory for statutory form powers of attorney have very, they're like, my agent has the right to deal with my real estate. My agent has the right to deal with my XYZ. They're very, very short. And as a result, if there's something that's a little bit more finicky or more complicated or more sophisticated that the agent needs to do, purchase life insurance, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. Or give gifts because we're trying to, let's say we're trying to spend down the conserved person's estate or the incapacitated person's estate, then we want to have something that's a little bit more detailed so that the court can feel comfortable or whomever you are dealing with as the agent can feel comfortable that that's covered and that was actually granted by the individual. So there are definite pros to that. The con is that they're very long. Um, Sometimes they're subject to interpretation and sometimes they're expensive to put in place. But This is one of the things we always have to think about, right? It may be expensive to put in place, but it might be a lot less than what litigation would be if you had an agent who needed to exercise one of the powers or something that's a little bit more sophisticated that goes beyond what would be in your statutory form. Gotcha. Okay. And I hate to belabor these points about choosing these people, but I think it's like so many of us get stuck here. And I'm thinking about healthcare power of attorneys in particular. How do we even think about end of life care, right? When we talk about, you know, the classic example of like everyone talking about pulling the plug, right? It's always on TV of like, are we going to pull the plug? How do we decide when we would want that to happen and make sure that we choose somebody that would respect that, right? In a very emotionally charged time of, do I want to be the one who makes this decision? Absolutely. So let me go back to nominating parents because I think this comes in a lot of times. We very often will default to I'm going to name my my mom to be or my dad to be my healthcare agent, especially for young adults, right? But then we definitely need to think, what are my long-term values? And we're talking about end-of-life care or we're talking about, even if we're talking about post-mortem. So here's an example for people to think about. There are religious considerations, and I deal with this a lot in my practice. There are certain religions that prohibit cremation. Many, many people opt for cremation. If you have nominated somebody, a fiduciary, to have you cremated once you pass, and that is against their religion, that is going to be a very, very difficult, it's going to be a difficult thing in any event, but that's going to be an extremely difficult. And that's true for organ donation as well. You know, many, many of us, thank goodness, are organ donors, but not everyone is. And you need to have a frank discussion with whom you've nominated or considering, hopefully you've done it before, right? Whoever you're considering nominating, because 
they are going to be responsible for doing that. And the last thing that you want to do, and we just don't tend to think about this, the last thing that you want to do is to name somebody who's going to have that difficulty in carrying out your wishes. Because exactly as you say, that is going to be difficult in any event. And so some other things to talk about are, and you can, you can take a look and there's a whole bunch of resources on the internet that will help you work through these conversations. But things like withholding nutrition and water at the end, right? I think it's, it's very, because it's so difficult to think about end of life for ourselves. We're like, Oh yeah, it's no problem. Just, you know, if it were me, just pull the plug. It's not, but if you, as the person who is at end of life, if you're unconscious and you don't see, you are not experiencing what the people who you've nominated are experiencing. So that's one. Here's another one for parents to think about. A lot of parents will say, oh, well, I've got, there are a number of different options for post-death treatment of the body. Do I want to give my body to, you know, for research and for medical science? Parents, please think about this very carefully. It's a wonderful thing if you choose to do it. For many parents and your kids, if you donate your body to medical science, the body doesn't come back. So that's something that you need to think about and think about what effect that might have on your kids. And it may be that you think about, well, you know, if my kids need to have a memorial to me, right? Because there's nothing to bury. So how are we going to handle that? All of that, it's absolutely the worst thing you are ever, ever, ever going to think about. Just know that this is the worst thing I'm ever going to think about, but think about it anyway. But those are things, things like that you need to think about because otherwise, if you just leave it, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen, right? Someone's going to have to make those decisions and people will be impacted by the decisions that you make or the decisions you don't make. Absolutely. Yeah, we were guided as we went through our process of that you can change this, right? That when you're young and you're more likely to be able to come off life support, more able to recover, to do everything possible. And then if you get older and you change your mind, that's okay. But decide how you would want your kids to be able to grieve and to be able to you know, interact with you and things like that. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. And so you brought up two young adults naming their parents, right? <laughs> and so I want to ask a question, not necessarily for full estate plans, but for powers of attorney. When do kids that are just entering adulthood, turning 18, leaving the house for the first time, need to have their own forms of power of attorney? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> this is like this is absolutely my favorite thing to talk about. And I talk in high schools and likely because my kids, you know, the last I have older kids who are now in college, but this is so important. <laughs> Parents, when your children turn 18, you will not automatically be entitled to receive their medical information. So in addition, Chelsea, to the medical powers of attorney that we're talking about, we'll talk about that in a second too. We're also talking about making sure that we've got HIPAA releases that name parents or other loved ones so that when you do have young people, so once your kids, parents, once your kids turn 18, even if you keep them on your health insurance plan, right? Because we're keeping our kids on our health insurance plans until well into their 20s. Mm -hmm. You will not necessarily be entitled to get their healthcare information. And kids need to know this too, right? So we've got kids that are going off to university or are out and about and are not living with you any longer and something happens to them. That's the worst phone call in the world. We actually had this happen in our office, which is what spurred us on to do all kinds of education in the high schools. A number of years ago, my assistant uh, received a phone call in the middle of the night. His sister was attending, we're in California. His sister was attending school in Georgia. He got a call in the middle of the night saying, you need to come down here immediately. And he said, well, what's going on? Well, we can't tell you what's going on. Oh my God. Right? So for the next 12 hours, while he was trying to get across the country to Georgia, they had no idea what was going on with, with his sister. They didn't know if she was in an accident they had no idea if she had passed away. They wouldn't tell them anything. And so it was really, really horrifying. And a HIPAA release, and everyone has signed them, right? So every time you go into the doctor, you're typically signing a HIPAA release every single time. And those forms are widely available on the internet. They're easy to understand. 
and they're easy to execute. So parents, please make that your number one. If everybody does one thing today and you've got <laughs> kids who have turned 18 or are young adults, let's do some HIPAA nominations today. And have the discussion with your kids about whether they would want you, because it's their choice, right? We, of course, want our kids to want us to have that medical information so that we can help guide them in making those decisions. But ultimately, it's their choice. And so that's something. And also something that we all need to know about HIPAA nominations. A HIPAA nomination is just the right to receive the medical information, It is not the right to make healthcare decisions on your behalf. That is part of an advanced healthcare directive or a medical power of attorney or a healthcare power of attorney, which also ought to be done once your kids turn 18 so that they are able to nominate. And typically that's a parent or someone who's been caring for them during their childhood so that those people can make those healthcare decisions on their behalf, but a HIPAA doesn't do that. It only allows the person who is nominated, the person who is who you've elected to receive that information, to receive information. And so those two pieces work together, the HIPAA and the Advanced Healthcare Directive, because the HIPAA allows you to receive the medical information if you've been nominated as a healthcare agent so that you can carry out the directives that are in the healthcare power of attorney or advanced healthcare directive. But the time to do it, 18, the minute they turn 18. And the time to think about it is before they turn 18. And Heather, I'll tell you, there's a reason I knew to ask that question, unfortunately. And we have a family friend whose son was 24 and came down with this rare medical condition, ended up in a medically induced coma. And she he did have HIPAA forms so that they could tell his mother what was happening. But she did not have an advanced healthcare directive and could not make decisions on his behalf. And so for us, where it came up was we have this family emergency binder that organizes all the other stuff that is not in a will. And she was telling me that like she wished she had had him fill parts of that out because she didn't know how to contact his employer. She didn't know what his health insurance was. She didn't have a power of attorney. And so she sat for 10 days by his hospital bed just unable to do anything. She had to just do what the doctors thought was best. And it was a really, really difficult conversation. And so it's something I'm glad that we have, glad we, there's a reason we talked about it, but I want all the moms to hear like this can be, you do not automatically have a say because they're your kids. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. No, it's terrible. But I'll tell you. So when I meet with the clients, I will have their young adults come in and we'll meet together. It doesn't need to be an intimidating process. And let me say this, it's a serious topic, but we don't always need to talk about it seriously, right? We can be humorous about it. It doesn't sound like we can be, but it's true. We can try to take that intimidation factor out because very often that is what is preventing us from moving forward. And so exactly the story that you just told. And so, you know, a lot of times when I spoke to my kids about it, I was like, well, here are some of the things that I'm concerned about. What if you go off on a bender? Right? It's horrible to say. No, but like, what if, you know, you're going off to college? I want to be sure. I'm not so naive to think (laughs) that that may not happen. What if that happens and something happens to you? You are going to want me down there yelling at you and doing, you know, doing whatever else I need to, but taking care of you, right? And at least having that support because otherwise it's scary enough as it is to be a young adult, right? You're in a new situation and in a new place and you don't necessarily have family members or even your friends whom you love and trust around you. And so it's really important. So important both for parents and for children. And again, the time to talk about it is before your 18th birthday, right? Before your kid's 18th birthday. And if you are in the process of doing your estate plan, you don't need to share you know, whatever the asset allocations are, the trust provisions with your kids, but you can let them know that you're working on it, that you're doing it. And these are the things that we're thinking about and get their take on it too. So let me also say this, when we're talking, just to go back to nominating guardians, because this is true as well, get their take on it. Who is it? If you've got kids that are in middle school, high school, talk to them about it. Is it the worst thing ever? It is way the worst thing ever. Mm -hmm. But should you talk about it? Yeah. You know, what if they've got opinions about who they want to be with that you're not aware of because we're afraid to we're afraid to talk about this. And that's actually a good point, too, about things being able to change, right? Of when we hear stories of, hey, I wanted my sister to have the kids when they were little. But now that they're in high school, maybe I want them to go to their best friend's house so they can finish high school where they were, right? 
So those things can change and it's good to have those conversations. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So for a number of reasons, right? Circumstances change as people get older. Your feelings about people change. People change Mm -hmm. as they get older. So, you know, even if you've done your plan 20 years ago, and this is, this is particularly important for healthcare directives and those types of powers of attorney, financial powers of attorney, HIPAA releases, et cetera. It's important to review those on a periodic basis, right? I would say once a year. We want to do it at the very, very outset, like at the, at the longest every five years. And one of the reasons for that is that if you don't have up-to-date nominations, we can't be sure that banks and hospitals will honor them if they think they're stale, if they're too old. So it's important, even if you are looking to nominate the very same people to keep those up to date, but it, it provides a good opportunity to have that discussion because yeah, people change. All of us change. And there are circumstances that can cause people to change. There are financial circumstances that cause people to change. There are other age causes people to change. New situations causes people to change. So there's a number of different reasons why you would want to take a look at those on a regular basis and don't be afraid of changing them. It's not a long and onerous process to do that. Awesome. Heather, this has been so informative. Do you have any advice for moms that are just starting this process, either mistakes to avoid or encouragement to just get started? Yeah. Choose one thing. It's really important. It seems overwhelming, especially if you're working with an attorney, right? They send you this packet and it's giant and I don't, I have to like try to track down all of my bank account numbers and all of these various pieces. So don't feel like you need to start with the whole enchilada. You can start with one thing. Let's say, everybody take a look at your HIPAA nominations. Start with the one thing. Once you do that one thing, that opens up the door. But don't be afraid to think about it. Don't be afraid to talk about it with your friends. And it can be over a bottle of wine or it can be over just a, you know, a gentle conversation. And it doesn't need to be serious or intimidating. But you've got to start somewhere. The important thing is to start. Absolutely. All right, Heather, before we let you go, we have to do a silly fun thing after our talk about estate planning and have you try on our Smart Money Mama's sorting hat. Oh, excellent. (laughs) So the sorting hat is our version of the hot seat where the magical hat asks a question to reveal something about you. Are you ready? I'm ready. What is your absolute favorite book that you think everyone should read? Okay, so it's a business book. (laughs) It's called The E-Myth or the Emith Revisited, and it's written by Michael Gerber, and it's gripping. <laughs> uh, it's about entrepreneurship and the myth about how when you get started for any of, for any of those mothers who are starting their own businesses, the trap that sometimes we fall into, the and the E in the E-myth is not electronic, it's entrepreneur, that the myth about it is that we are all fantastic business people at the outset. And how it is that we try to make the transition from being the technician in our business to really running your business as an enterprise. And so if any, if anyone is interested in business books, that's a, it's a keeper. It's a great, it's a really good one. Yeah. It's a really good one. What changes did you make in your business after you read it? Or did you make any? I made a ton of changes. (laughs) And I actually, I, I had the fantastic opportunity to be able to meet Michael Gerber in person last year. And he was just as, he's fabulous. I audio for any of you who do audio books. I'm a huge fan of authors who narrate their own books and he did his and he's exactly his his whole personality is in that book. What are the changes that I made? I tried to really step out of the role of the technician and look at my business more as a business and get myself out of the hero mentality where, you know, the whole business revolved around me and what it was that I was able to do for my clients. And when I made that change, I was able to drastically improve my customer service because it wasn't, I was not the roadblock in my business any longer. That's fantastic. All right, Heather, where can people follow up with you and find more resources about you? So you can go to my website. It's Satin Legal, S-A-T-I-N-L-E-G-A-L.com. And uh, we're working right now on putting some COVID-19 resources up there for any of you who are impacted. All of us are impacted by that right now. Or just shoot me an email at heather at satinlegal.com. Excellent. Heather, thank you so much. I hope we get to talk to you again soon. Thank you, Chelsea. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Wow, mamas. So much valuable information packed into one interview, right? 
I always learn so much from Heather about the estate planning process, and I really love how she makes a difficult subject so approachable. I know a lot of us are going to want to go back and listen to this episode and take some notes again. Her point about naming temporary guardians and helping your newly adult kids complete HIPAA forms and powers of attorney were particularly valuable. I hope you heed her advice to get those things done ASAP, just in case. As always, I rounded up my three top takeaways from today's episode to help you focus in on Heather's main points. Hopefully, it encourages you to start the estate planning process with your family or to remember to revisit any decisions you've already made. First, you don't have to take the time to make these choices. But if you don't, the state will do it for you. Heather emphasized that the state's plan isn't always a bad one. If you have a simple family structure, your kids are no longer minors, and you're happy with your state's policy, great, you're done. But for a lot of us, we want to say in where our money goes and who gets guardianship of our children, especially if it means their probate process is much faster and cheaper. It's a good reminder that, in this case, not making a decision is making a decision, You're choosing to go with your state's plan. And how often do you trust your state's government to make major financial decisions for you? So even if you aren't sure, you don't want to think about it, treat estate planning as an act of love and don't put it off for another day. Second, have real conversations with the people in your life that you name in your estate plan. Heather and I chuckled a bit about the number of people who don't know they are named executors, trustees, or guardians until the will is read, but it's a problem. We're asking our loved ones to take on a burden, and it is a burden, even if they love us with their whole hearts and would want to do anything for us. So before you name someone in your will, ask them if they're comfortable with it first. Let them know you realize that it's a lot to ask and that it is a burden. And as Heather said, be ready for them to say no. Would it be hard to hear them say no? Hard to discuss a world without you in it? darn straight, but a world where your children's caretaker only takes them out of obligation or where your child has to hear someone in their life stand up in family court and say they don't want them? Oh my goodness, that's so much worse. So speak up. Have the conversation. And finally, third, remember that you can change your mind. Estate planning is difficult because it feels so overwhelmingly final, like we're carving our wishes into stone, and what if we make the wrong choice? Yet updating a will or even a trust, it just isn't that hard. If relationships change, your lifestyle changes, or kids just get older and want to say and where they would go, make a change. It's better to make the best choice you can today than wait and have no record of your wishes when you need them. It's never the perfect time to make hard choices. But you're a mom. You do hard things all the time, especially when you know how much it can help your kiddos. You've got this. I want to thank Heather again for joining me on the show and telling her story. If you learned something today, I'd super appreciate if you hit the subscribe button in the podcast app so you don't miss future episodes. And share this episode with a friend. This particular topic is hard. It's one many of us struggle with, and a little insight can go a long way. If you'd like to see the full show notes with links to Heather's site and social media, or to download your free financial emergency preparedness checklist, visit us at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Heather. Keep talking money, mamas. I'll see you next time. 